Well, thanks to the worship team for leading us this morning. It's been great to sing the songs that we've sung in worship. Most of the songs we sing here at worship are upbeat and they're positive and they're jolly and they usually focus on God's love and on how great God is, on what Jesus has done for us and how wonderful he is. But the hymn book that Jesus grew up with was a little bit different. The hymn book that Jesus grew up with wasn't Mission Praise, believe it or not, or um, the hymn book that I grew up with called uh, Hymns of Light and Love or Redemption or some of those old hymn books that you might have known. The hymn book that Jesus grew up with was called the Psalms. It was 150 hymns or songs, spiritual songs called the Psalms, still called the Psalms. And that was what Jesus grew up with. That's what the writers of the New Testament grew up with. People like Paul, they were, that was the hymn book that he grew up with. And the hymn book of the Psalms, it was and is 150 different songs or hymns, what we call Psalms, and they cover all sorts of different issues much, much wider in content than the kind of songs that we sing in church today. Some Christians love the Psalms and they find them really, really helpful and they are a great kind of motivator and a basis for worship. That last song we've sung is actually taken largely from one of the Psalms and quite a few of the songs we sing regularly here at Regent are are just kind of lifted from the Psalms and put to music um, and uh, they're a great uh, basis for our worship. And some Christians find... Uh, different aspects of the Psalms, great just to be able to connect with and help them in their, in their Christian walk and particularly in worship. But some of the Psalms are really difficult for us to get our heads around. Some of the Psalms contain things which we sometimes struggle with. John S. Magabgab, it's a difficult name to say, uh, Magabgab, anyway, he wrote this about the Psalms. If the Psalms have been a source of spiritual instruction and consolation for many seekers, They've also filled others with discomfort and bewilderment, an untidiness, a turbulence, an undertow of mystery in these ancient prayers. The Psalms aren't a kind of systematic theology book. They're not even really a theology book. There's all sorts of things in them, and they don't fit often neatly or or nicely into how we would uh, expect uh, our Bibles to be there. They're not kind of chronological. They don't just deal with different subjects. And even within one Psalm, there's Sometimes what appears at first to be kind of all sorts of random things going on. And one of the psalms that we might find really bewildering and even maybe unsettling is Psalm 28 because it, it, it contains things in it that seem to run contrary to what we might think of as standard Christian thought or, or belief or practice or behavior. In Psalm 28, there's really two themes going on. One is of David crying out to God for help and, and receiving that help but also a a kind of central theme that we're we're particularly going to focus on today is a desire for God to punish the wicked. And that seems a bit at odds, doesn't it, with a kind of Christian uh, ethic, desire, thought, worldview of Christian ideals of, of wanting to bless people, of wanting to see people experience God's forgiveness and love. So even the very worst of people, we still pray for them, don't we, that we want them to be saved, we want them to experience God's forgiveness. And this seems a little bit at odds, that, that kind of Christian ideal, ethic, worldview seems a little bit at odds with what David is, is saying. He just wants his enemies nuked, he wants them destroyed, he wants God to just burn them up. And those things seem a little bit at odds. Now we don't know for sure what was going on in David's life when he wrote this, he probably wrote this after the event, but the content of the psalm suggests that it's probably when some of those close to him had betrayed him in some way or other. We know there was a particular time when David's son, Absalom, staged the military coup. He'd been plotting behind David's back and he got some of the leading people in the government uh, along with him and they staged a military coup and, and David found himself on the run in his own kingdom. And that seems to be probably 
where, uh, what this psalm is talking about in David's life. David talks about crying out to God for mercy, so he was obviously experiencing something really, really bad. And he refers to wicked people who say one thing to your face while at the same time plotting evil in their hearts. People who by their own actions show that they've rejected God. And this really seems to describe the, the situation with Absalom. But as the Holy Spirit inspired and oversaw the collecting and the, and, and the gathering of these psalms and putting them into the, what we now call the Bible, he chose for whatever reason not to record the specific situation. So we don't actually know the specifics behind this. We just know the content, the theme, the sentiments, if you like. And I think the main reason for that is because God wanted his people throughout history, not just the early readers of these psalms, not just the people in the New Testament, but, but us today too, to be able to identify with the sentiments even if we don't know the contents or the, or, or the specific situations that the Psalms were written for. There's probably not many of us, I, I guess, have been on the wrong end of a military coup caused by our sons. Our sons might have caused us lots of hassle for those of us who have sons, but it's probably fair to say that we haven't had military coups take place, although it might feel like that sometimes in our houses. But I think we can probably all identify with situations where we're desperate for God's help. And we're desperate for God to intervene in our lives. That might be through illness, financial problems, relationship struggles, could be all sorts of things. We can all probably identify with having anger and hatred towards people who have mistreated us in some way. Wanting God to punish them for what they've done to us. And so although we don't know the specifics of David's situation, we can read this psalm and we can, we can identify with it in, in, in different ways. And we can learn from it and so... God willing, be helped by it. So we're going to read Psalm 28 together. I'm going to read it to you, and you can just listen if you want, or if you have a Bible, you can read along with me as I read it to you. So Psalm 28 of David. To you I call, O Lord my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me, for if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands toward your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbours but harbour malice in their hearts. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve, since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done. He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. But David found himself desperate for God's help, just as we, we do perhaps in all sorts of different ways, maybe not to the extremity of David's situation, but in those uh, sometimes big and small ways throughout our day, throughout our week, throughout our lives, desperate for God's help, whether it's for God to rescue us from something or to step in and help us in a situation. And so in verse 1, he cries out, and, and all the verses are on the outline for you, and there's things for you to fill in if you want to use that this morning. So in verse 1, David cries out, To you I call, O Lord my rock, do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I shall be like those who go down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Whatever David was experiencing and he uh, was horrible and he was desperate for God to intervene and for God to help him. If God doesn't intervene, he says he's going to be like those who go down to the pit. In other words, those who are dead, those who are buried. And so he cries out to God for help and he says that he lifts his hands towards the most holy place. And 
And the most holy place was that inner room within the tabernacle or what would eventually become the temple where God's presence was most experienced on earth. So David was demonstrating, he was, he was kind of outwardly demonstrating, and some of us might do that in worship today, we might lift our hands in worship. David was demonstrating as he held his hands out, empty hands towards, towards God, symbolically present there in the holy place, that he was utterly and totally dependent on God. That if God didn't show up, his life was, was over, he was going to go down to the pit. And, and David was doing the right thing by praying. He was in a terrible place, but he knew that he needed to bring that desperate need, that terrible situation, to the Lord. Now, we don't know how God answered his prayer or when. It might have been straight away. It might have been after a long time. But what we do know is that the very act of coming to God in prayer, of kind of symbolically stretching out his hands to God, brought about a measure of rescue in and of itself in his heart. When we're in a terrible situation, sometimes you know, just the act of praying can bring transformation to our hearts and to our minds. God may or may not choose to rescue us from the situation we're in. God isn't a slot machine. He can't be kind of coerced into doing what we wish. God sometimes responds in the way we'd like and sometimes he doesn't. But when we pray, God can rescue us even if it's internally. He does change us. It's often said that prayer changes things, and that's true. God acts when his people pray. But more often than not, the greatest change is in us as we pray. Paul wrote these words in the New Testament. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we pray... God does often respond by intervening in our circumstances and changing them. Not always on our timetable or on our time scale, but, so, but often he does. But the greatest change that takes place is often actually in our own hearts, in our own attitudes. The very act of bringing things to God in prayer can change us. And Paul says here that as we pray and as we hand over the problems and the difficulties and the worries of our lives to the Lord, we receive in return his peace. A great exchange takes place. As we give it to God, he in turn gives us his peace. And God's peace, Paul says, is a, is a peace that transcends all understanding. It's not a peace that we get from alcohol or from drugs or from uh, relationships or from anything else. It's a peace that only God can give and it transcends anything else. And one of the results of receiving God's peace is that our mental health, our mental well-being is guarded. The peace of God, Paul says, guards our heart and our minds, the very seat, the very inner being of our soul, is guarded and protected. The anxieties, the pressures, the stresses of life uh, are replaced by peace as we pray. And it might sound trite, it might sound simplistic, but this really is true. As we come to God and engage with him in prayer, and as we hand over to him our troubles, and that's the key, that we have to hand them over. So often we come to God in prayer, and then we take all our troubles back, and we carry them off, and we carry on as normal. And the key really is learning to surrender those issues and to hand them over to God in prayer. And as we do that, as we genuinely do that, the peace of God, we really do experience the peace of God and experience that change in our own hearts. See, God wants us to bring our problems. Write this down. God wants to bring our problems and our worries to him. So often we hold them close to ourselves. We don't bring them to God. We don't bring them to Jesus. We don't bring them to that great shepherd, to that throne of grace. And God just wants us to bring them to him and leave them at his feet. And in, as we do that in prayer, this brings us great peace. The peace of God that passes and transcends all understanding. As we bring our problems to God, the very act of prayer changes us. 
often as we're praying about somebody or something or a situation, we come away different people. The problem might still be there, but we come away transformed through the very act of prayer and as we hand over our problems to God and receive his peace. Now David did experience some kind of response from God. Look at verse 6. He says, Praise be to the Lord, for he has heard my cry for mercy. In some form or other, God intervened in David's life, and so David wanted to acknowledge what God had done. Look at verses 7 to 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to him in song. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. David wanted to give the Lord the credit for what he'd done and for who he was because David knew that his help had come from the Lord. David had prayed and God had shown up and God had delivered him. And David gives us a great example here, doesn't he? of not just asking and not just coming with our requests and our problems and our struggles, but actually then taking time to stop and acknowledge who has helped us. When we've received that help, David then stops and he acknowledges that this has come from the Lord and he praises him. If you're anything like me, then you probably don't pray in the first place enough. And then when you do pray and God answers, you forget to say thank you. That's, that's my pattern so often. Firstly, forgetting to pray or not praying as often as I should do when I have problems. Go and find every other solution and then coming back, yeah, should have prayed first. And maybe you're not like me, but that's my experience so often. And then even when the Lord does show up and, and, and changes things and transforms situations, we're quick, aren't we, just to move on, to forget, and to, in, in, instead of stopping and, and acknowledging that God has showed up, that God has blessed me, God has helped me. Now maybe you're not like that, but I certainly am. I, I pray about things far less than I should, and then when I do pray, I forget to give thanks to God when he answers me. One, one of the things that Bob has really pushed as our prayer coordinator has not only been the sending round of prayer requests, but also sending round news on how God has answered those prayer requests. And, and that's great because it shows us that the Lord does answer prayer, but it also reminds us then, doesn't it, when, when that text or that email comes through or that phone call comes through to stop and say thank you. Lord, not only we've brought our prayer request to you, but I'm going to take time now just to stop and say thank you. So write that on your outline. I need to stop and take time to say thank you to God when he answers my prayers. We're really quick, or, or often we're not, we're not quick enough, but we're certainly much quicker to ask, but we need to stop too and acknowledge when God blesses us, when God intervenes and changes our situations and rescues us. And this is what David did, did in, this, in this situation. Now, we can all get our heads around, I, I, I guess, the the need for prayer, the need for thanksgiving in a song. This was a song that, that Jesus would have grown up singing. We can get our heads around that, can't we? The, the songs that we sing are full of those kind of things. We, we've sung all sorts of songs like this morning. We're going to sing some more later. That's the kind of songs we sing. But the middle section of this psalm contains concepts, as I've already said, that, that we might find harder to make sense of and which we might even be surprised to find in the Bible, let alone a song that Jesus would have grown up singing. David says in verse 3, do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbours but harbour malice in their hearts. What he's essentially saying is if God doesn't answer his prayers, people will therefore presume that he's a wicked man, which is why God isn't answering his prayers. And of course, David doesn't want to be in that position. Then he goes on to describe what the wicked people that are the cause of his current troubles are doing. And it's here that we get a clue to the circumstances behind this psalm. David describes the wicked as those who do evil, and then he says that one of the things that they do is that they say one thing to those around them whilst at the same time plotting evil in their hearts towards those very same people. 
And David's probably referring to when his son Absalom and others in the government had been secretly plotting behind his back. And then David lets loose at these people. Look at what he says. Repay them for their deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. They've plotted against the king, against the one that God has anointed. It's God's king. David is God's king. So their work was evil. It wasn't just evil towards David. It was evil towards God because this was God's king. And so David wants God to repay them for their evil actions and, 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 and to give them what they deserve. Punish them, Lord. Get rid of them. Destroy them. And he goes on to say in verse 5, Since they show no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. In other words, God's just going to wipe them out. That's what they deserve. This is what David is praying for. And these kind of words and sentiments are a bit awkward for us, aren't they? When we read them at first, that, that, that they kind of jar with us a little bit from a Christian perspective. Quite often, and I certainly do this, maybe sometimes at a prayer meeting we might read bits of a psalm, but we te- these are the bits we tend to leave out. We skip over these bits, we read the praisey bits, and then we skip over these kind of awkward bits. They're, they're not exactly Christian. We, we use the concepts of loving our enemies, forgiving people, wanting sinful people to repent and receive God's forgiveness. So when we read things like this in the Bible, I don't know about you, but I'm a bit uncomfortable with it. It's not the first thing I would read with a non-Christian or, or, or get up and share in a church service. I'm not really sure what to make of them. So what are we to make of these kind of psalms? Theologians call them imprecatory psalms. Or in simple terms, they're cursing psalms. That's what it means. The writer's calling down a curse on his enemies or, or, or on specific people. Now my parents are moving house at the minute and they're, they're sorting through what they want to throw out. And my parents are just heartless people who just, my mum just bins everything. And, uh, Mom, you've thrown all those things out again. And, and, oh. and so I've told my dad, look, when you're going through your office, all those books that belong to my granddad and my other granddad and my grandparents and great-grandparents, all those Christian books and Bibles, don't throw them out. My dad's got all these stuff on his shelf. And, and I don't want to lose them partly for sentimental reasons and for historical reasons, but actually they're a window into the spiritual lives of my grandparents and and, and even great-grandparents in some instances. In those Bibles and Christian books are notes, are comments that people who've gone before me have written down and their insights into their own journey with God. They had no knowledge or or thought of me when they wrote those notes down. This was a a little insight into their own journey with God. Though they had no knowledge or, or thought of me when they wrote those notes and comments down, I can read them now, perhaps 50 years, 100 years, even maybe 150 years later in, in, in some instances, and I can be challenged, I can be moved, I can be convicted, I can be helped in my own relationship with God as I see that window into their lives. And the Psalms are just like that. They are insights into the spiritual lives of those who've gone before us, preserved for us by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has deliberately preserved Psalms with this kind of content for us to teach us a number of things. So just because they're in the Bible doesn't mean, although the Holy Spirit inspires all Scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit agrees with all the sentiments, but the Holy Spirit has preserved them there for us to learn from. And the first thing is this, write this down. God wants me to be honest with him and tell him how I feel about life, about other people, and even about him, most shockingly. Even about him, most shockingly. God wants us to be honest about how we feel. Because let's be honest, we don't always wake up and feel like running around the house praising God, do we? We don't always feel like saying, hey, this is wonderful, everything's wonderful in my life and great and fantastic and isn't it wonderful to be a Christian? It would be great if that was our everyday experience, but it isn't, is it? 
we get sick, we have money problems, we have relationship problems, we have job problems, we have people problems. And God wants us to be honest with him about those situations because quite often we'll, we'll wake up and we will feel horrible. And life will feel horrible. God already knows what's in our hearts. He knows that we feel that way. And God wants us just to come to him and to be brutally honest with him. And as we do so, we may well find that as we pray, God will change how we feel about those other people, for instance. And our attitudes can change from that of anger and hate, maybe towards those who've hurt us or wronged us or are causing us grief, as was happening in David's life. And as we pray for those very people, even possibly some coming to Lord, Lord, I hate that person. That person, it, it, the things that they've done are just horrendous. Lord, I, I really hate them. They deserve your wrath. But even in the process of praying that prayer, and God wants us to be that honest and that brutal, because this is what David was doing. Then as we do that, he will often change our very heart from a heart of anger and, and, and hatred towards that of love and forgiveness. Philip Yancey, who's written a really helpful book called The Bible Jesus Read, and it's a, a kind of a, a fresh look at the Old Testament from a kind of... Um, devotional sense. I've got a copy of it if anybody wants to read it. Philip Yancey writes this about the Psalms. He says, I see the cursing Psalms, this is a cursing Psalm, I see the cursing Psalms as an important model for how to deal with evil and injustice. I should not try to suppress my reaction of horror and outrage at evil, nor should I try to take justice into my own hands. Rather, I should deliver those feelings stripped bare to God. As the books of Job, Jeremiah and Habakkuk clearly show, God has a high threshold of tolerance for what it is appropriate to say in a prayer. God can handle my unsuppressed rage. I may well find that my vindictive feelings need God's correction, but only by taking those feelings to God will I have that opportunity for correction and healing. Secondly, well, the second thing I think we see as we look into these windows of, of, of the psalmist's lives is that we need to cultivate a hatred for evil and see sin the way that God sees sin. We need to write that on your outline. We need to cultivate a hatred for evil and see sin the way that God sees it. David was angry for himself, but actually David wasn't just angry for himself. David was angry on God's behalf because in rebelling against David, in doing what these people who were plotting behind David's back, they were actually rebelling against God. David was the Lord's anointed. And even David himself, when uh, Saul was in his hands, David said, I cannot lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. That would be a grievous sin. And so David, when he is king, is outraged, not only for himself, but actually on God's behalf. And what David shows here is that he's seeing not only the sin and the hurt and the anger in his own life, but actually he's seeing sin from God's perspective. He's seeing bad behavior from God's perspective. And, you know, the more we read the Bible, the more time we spend with the Lord in prayer and in worship, the more we will see and experience His holiness and begin to see things as God sees them. And we really need to do that because we very quickly become desensitized to sin. Sin is all around us. We sin. We are surrounded by sin. Everybody sins. We see it everywhere. And, and so really easily in our culture, well, in any culture, we just become desensitized to it. It just becomes normal. We watch sin as entertainment. We put the TV on and we watch stuff that is sin and we are entertained by sin. We laugh at sin. We find it funny. 
We choose to watch stuff. We choose to read stuff. We're amused by it. But we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be. We shouldn't watch sin for entertainment. We shouldn't laugh at sin. We shouldn't be amused by sin. We need to hate sin. We need to be outraged by sin. Whether it's gossip, whether it's slandering others behind their backs, saying things, destroying people's characters, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's social injustice, or whether it's global terrorism and everything in between. When we see bad behavior, whether it's in the person next to us, or whether it's overseas or on the news, we should be intolerant of bad behavior. We shouldn't tolerate bad behavior. We shouldn't tolerate sin. And when we see bad things on the news, we should hate what we see. We should hate to see planes bombing, in ch- bombing children in hospitals. We should hate that. It should break our hearts. We should be outraged. And when we see sin around us, it might not be in a, in a foreign situation. It might be right next to us. We should be outraged by sin. It should, it should disgust us. It should, we should hate it. And there's a sense in which we should want God to punish those responsible. God is a God of justice and righteousness, not just love and forgiveness. And so when we find ourselves often instinctively wanting justice and wanting to see evil people punished for their behavior, as as David does in this song, that's a good thing. Because that's what God wants too. And so when we find those emotions flaring up within us, there there are good aspects to that. Because we are showing that we have we, we have a likeness to God in that way. And if people don't repent of their evil and trust Jesus as their Savior, then one day they will face God's punishment and God's eternal wrath. God is a God of wrath and a God of justice. If we don't believe that, we just look at this table because there, here on this table we see emblems of, of, of God's wrath and God's justice. That he poured out his, his hatred, his disgust, his abomination of sin on his Son, on Jesus, for you, for me. God hates sin. God is holy. And we should hate sin. But there's a difficulty in this, isn't it? Because as well as wanting, pursuing justice and righteousness, we all know that at the heart of what it, fo- of what it means to follow Jesus is the call to love people. At the heart of the Christian faith is love because there at the cross, not only did God's wrath and justice fall on Jesus, God's love and mercy and grace flow to you and me. And so the call for us is to forgive people, to do what we can to bring people into a relationship with a loving God, so to receive eternal life. And so there's a tension, isn't there, between hating sin but loving the sinner, loving our enemies yet wanting justice. And that's a hard tension to manage. And there's a sense in which only God can be both a God of holiness and justice and righteousness on the one hand, and on the other hand be a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Only God can, can, can balance that truly we always find ourselves either leaning too much one way or too much the other way. And that's why it's so important you know, that, that, we, that we read the Bible and that we don't just read the bits that we like, but we read the Bible systematically and chronologically and we work our way through it because then we're forced to read the bits that we find uncomfortable. Then we're forced to read the bits that we wouldn't choose to read. You know, if I was writing this, it wouldn't look the way it does. My theological book would look very different to the Bible. But I didn't write it, thank goodness, and you didn't write it, and God wrote it. And so instead of coming on on the Word of God and deciding what we would like it to say, we have to submit to the Word of God. And that's why reading it and systematically reading it helps us to encounter the truths of the Bible so that we read not just the bits that we like, but the bits that we don't like. 
and find difficult. Otherwise, what happens is we end up creating a God in our image. We end up inventing a faith that we would like. Christian faith minus a few things or plus a few things. God plus a few things or minus a few things. And that's why we need to search for the real God of the Bible and not just the God that we would like to invent. And that's also where coming to God in prayer and being honest is so important because as we bring our hearts to God in prayer, we'll find that our hearts are brought more into line with the way God thinks and sees things. Paul, quoting from the Old Testament in Romans, says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is biblical. But that vengeance and wrath is for God to bring and not for us to bring. We should hate sin. We should hate to see people sin. We should want justice and vengeance. That is biblical. But we need to hand over that desire to God in prayer and to leave those situations with him, trusting that he will deal with those people and situations. And as we do so, it will, it will enable us to continue loving those same people seeking their best, seeking their salvation, wanting the best for them, even when they may deserve the very opposite. And as we do that, we need to keep reminding ourselves about our own lives. Because we know how we need to be reminded, as we sung this morning, about God's grace. Because we are only who we are. We are only where we are because of God's grace and mercy that he's extended to us. It's only because of God's grace that we find ourselves forgiven. We don't deserve it any more than the next person. We deserve God's wrath just as much as the next person. Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians, says this, Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Whilst we need to hate sin and to hate sin in other people and we should want to see justice and to see God punish sin, that's biblical, that is honouring to a God who is holy and righteous. We need to always remember that some of us were guilty of those very same things. And it's only because God saved us, washed us and made us right in his sight that we're no longer living that way. But for the grace of God, where would you be? Where would I be this morning if God hadn't stepped into our lives and saved us? I know my natural proclivity towards certain sins. I'm not going to tell you where I'd be this morning if it wasn't for God's grace, but I've got a fair idea of the kind of mess my life would look like if God hadn't rescued me. So write this down. We need to remember that we were once facing God's wrath and have only been saved by God's grace. It's only because God has stepped in and rescued us. And we've encountered the grace of God that we find ourselves rescued from that wrath. We deserve it just as much as anybody else. And you know, even if we've never really lived a sinful life, maybe we've been brought up in a Christian home as I was, trusted Jesus at an early age, we need to be honest about our natural tendency to sin. We may never have committed adultery or murder, but Jesus says that when a man looks lustfully after another woman in his heart, he has committed adultery. When a person hates another person, they've committed murder in their hearts. We might not worship a physical idol. God hates idolatry. He says that the person who is an idolater will not go to heaven, will not inherit the kingdom of God. We might not worship a physical idol, but how often do we find ourselves worshipping things, putting things ahead of God, 
our careers, our families, our money, our reputation. That's idolatry. God hates it. So God wants us to hate sin. He wants us to be passionate about righteousness and justice. And as we see sin around us, it should outrage us. And we should want to see sin punished and dealt with. But as we do so, we need to ensure that we don't become self-righteous and judgmental. We need to remember where we would be if it wasn't for God's grace. That's why these psalms are so useful and helpful. They show us what it looks like to pray through our anger, to pray through our frustrations and our spite until we get to a place where we're able to submit to God's will. And then, and only then, will the godly man and woman be able to pray for evil to be dealt with and God's kingdom of holiness, righteousness and justice to be extended. As we come in prayer, prayer changes us. So as we come so often with, a, with, with hearts wanting vengeance or, or with wanting certain things to happen, as we pray, the sinful attitudes within that are stripped away or can be stripped away by God. So we begin to see things as God sees them rather than as our hearts would choose to see them. Prayer changes us. So let's just bow our heads this morning and spend some time before God. The band are going to come up in a moment and lead us in worship. But before we do that, just bow our heads. It may be that this morning that there are problems in your life that you need to bring to God in prayer. Maybe you've got real difficult terrible situations that you're struggling with in your life. I just encourage you to bow your head now, just, just to close our eyes, bow our heads, and to bring those to God in prayer, to the God who says, come to me, come to my throne of grace, and receive help in, my time, in your time of need. It may be that you need to stop and to say thank you to God for something he's recently done for you. Just to acknowledge, Lord, thank you. Thank you for intervening in that situation. Maybe that you need to come to God and be honest with him and tell him how you really feel about a situation. Maybe even how you really feel about him. Maybe that you need to ask God to give you a greater hatred of sin and repent of the way in which you've been tolerating sin in the world around you. Maybe that you need to repent of being self-righteous and get a fresh sense of just how gracious God has been to you.